Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, innovators, and those doing the boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. I am excited to welcome Eva Patterson. Eva is the president and co-founder of the Equal Justice Society, a legal organization transforming the nation's consciousness on race through law, social science, and the arts. And as I mentioned, EJS celebrated its 20th anniversary in 2020 as well. And prior to taking the helm of the Equal Justice Society in 2003, Eva worked at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights for 26 years, 13 of them as the executive director. And she led the organization's work providing free legal services to low-income individuals, litigating class action civil rights cases, and advocating for social justice. She has been an advocate for civil rights and social justice for a number of decades, and um, we are so excited to have you with us today, Eva. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I am really looking forward to our conversation today just on our email exchanges, but I think it probably makes sense to lay some groundwork. And let's start with what was what was the background behind the founding of the Equal Justice Society in 2000? What, what was going on in the world at that time that made you think there needs to be an organization that is addressing this in this way? There were three things going on in the year 2000 when we were founded. There had been a series of very reactionary opinions from the United States Supreme Court, because by that time, the conservatives had really taken over and, and it looks like heaven back then compared to what we're seeing now. And my views are my own. They're not of the Jackson Center. So don't blame the center for things I'm going to say. Um, so it seemed to me that the way civil rights lawyers had been working wasn't going to be what was going to work in the 21st century. Um, what And it's so interesting. And one of the reasons I wanted to be here today is, is Justice Jackson was one of the nine votes to knock out separate but equal. And so I thank him so much for that. Um, I wasn't, I was five years old at the time. Uh, I was born in the segregated South. Um, and so there's a wonderful book called Simple Justice by Richard Kluger. I thought that Brown versus Board of Education just popped up in 1954. What I realized after reading the book was that this had been a decades long strategy. They had started off attacking uh, separate but equal in law schools. How could you have a separate but equal law school? And over time, there were five cases that got up to the court in 54. And I was fascinated by this book. In addition, it talked about the fact that social science was pivotal in convincing the judges to strike down separate but equal. Dr. Kenneth Clark, his wife, Dr. Mamie Clark and other social scientists had experiments done that showed that segregating the races gave black people, and it was a black and white paradigm at that time. Although one of the first desegregation cases was the Mendez case out of California, which involved Mexican schools. Hmm. Um, but anyway, it showed that segregating the races gave black kids a false sense of inferiority and gave white students a false sense of superiority. So when they brought this before the court, this was one of the ways that the court ended up striking down Plessy versus Ferguson. Um, in addition, the civil rights and social justice community was very siloed. The environmental people were here, the criminal justice people were here, the racial justice people were here. Bayard Rustin, who was one of the men who was very pivotal in Dr. King's work, um, talked about something called the Grand Coalition. And by that he meant, we have a vision of a perfected world and each of us have our roles to play, but we have each other's backs. So while I might 
be focusing on racial justice, climate change is critical. So if people from the climate change community want racial justice people to help them advance a process, we're there. So that was the second piece of it. The third piece of it was that the progressive community was very bad at communicating ideas. We <laughs> thought that if we just said loud enough and long enough, we're right, we're right, we're right, we would win. Nope. So we needed to figure out a way to um, give messages that were appealing to people uh, and the way to talk about things that brought people to you. And at that time, most civil rights organizations were not that concerned with communications and they actually thought we were kind of weird. Um, so we had communications as one of our strategies. So it was one, looking at the fact that business as usual in the federal courts wasn't going to work. Two, that the civil rights and social justice community needed to work more collaboratively together. And third, we needed a better way to communicate our message. What we found, and I don't need to be filibustering now, but what we found in one of our first conferences at Stanford was we identified a concept that had been known for a while. Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow and who is a co-founder of EJS, was on a panel. And she talked about a concept that was very kind of not well understood at the time called implicit bias or unconscious bias. Uh, the best example I can give is this. Nelson Mandela, after he's freed, freed from Robben Island, gets on a plane. He sees that the pilot is black. He freaks out. He then goes, oh my God, I've totally internalized this notion that black people are inferior. We all do this. If, and we do it with a lot of things, with weight, with um, height, um, Pepsi versus Coca-Cola. We That's all have stereotypes. There you go. We all have stereotypes that we've internalized that we're not conscious of that nonetheless help us make bad decisions. So I can go on and on and on, but we use that concept to really change the vote of Justice Anthony Kennedy in a race case. Um, I won't get into the weeds on this, but the law in fair housing used to be that you had to be a blatant racist before the fair housing laws applied. We showed that often people who think they aren't racist will nonetheless not show an apartment to a Latina that they would to a white woman. And we were able to show that unconscious bias and implicit bias results in housing inequities. So we were on our way to changing um, the law. And then um, Merrick Garland, Mitch McConnell, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett. Ah! Um, and so I hope younger people watching this can pick up the baton later when we have a more balanced court. Although there are moves afoot to expand the court. So that is kind of how we got started and why we got started. Okay, there's so much for us to delve into here. Okay, um, so one of the things that I have long mired about Justice Jackson, and you touched on this a little bit in what you just said, was really his ability to craft a conversation or craft his writing or his oratory for his audience, regardless of their background. And so he was very conscientious of you know, I'm speaking to high school students. This is sort of the tone and the language I should use. I am speaking to the world. If we're talking about the Nuremberg trials, this is the language and the, and the gravity with which I need to speak. And there is something that we haven't touched on yet in the work that EJS does that I think plays into this. And that is the artistic component of what you do. And so I also want to, because this is part of what I find so fascinating about the work that you do, not that I don't enjoy the legal work and the advocacy work, but this, this artistic component to really pull in audiences that might not otherwise be exposed to these concepts. And so I'd love to also get a little bit of an understanding of how did that come about? Like, how did you notice that gap and, and work to fill that? Well, all the other things I talked about have kind of lofty origins. The origin of this was not lofty, it was mercenary. Um, we used to have a lot of lunches and dinners and they were boring and we weren't getting, it was how we'd raise money and we weren't getting you know, a lot of people to come. So I thought, because um, someday I'm gonna make movies, um, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to have 
to commission a civil rights jazz ballet and have that be our event and more people will come to that. And so once again, the origins of this were not lofty, but over time, it's been totally remarkable. Um, the first thing we did is uh, there was an incident in World War II out here in California. Um, black men were in the Navy and many black men enlisted because they wanted to fight fascism. When we got, and this was my father, he's a military, was a military man. But when they got into the armed services, Jim Crow was there um, at the particular uh, naval facility in Contra Costa County, Port Chicago, black men were lo loading what they call ordnance or bombs on the ships. Mm -hmm. And there was no offense against Southerners because I was born in Texas. And maybe these weren't even Southerners, I shouldn't malign the South. There were some racist officers who were betting on the black men and who could load the ships faster. Wow. Just what? And so one night in June, I think it was 44, this huge explosion went off in Port Chicago. Port Chicago is miles and miles away from San Francisco. People in San Francisco felt it and were knocked out of their beds. Wow. This is how big the explosion was. So um, the black men there were not given gloves. They weren't given any protective uh, equipment to use. Feels like the PPE stuff in the COVID. I guess everything's old is new again. New again, yep. <laughs> And so they refused to load any more bombs. And so they were court-martialed. And Thurgood Marshall was involved. Um, I think Clinton pardoned some of them, a good use of the pardon. Um, and so we were gonna do this civil right jazz ballet and people said, well, let's not just always go to the South. There were things that happened in the Bay Area. So the brilliant composer and bass player, Marcus Shelby, who literally was a rocket scientist. He was a rocket scientist who happened to like music. He's an incredible bass player. He's kind of a modern day Duke Ellington. He has a big jazz orchestra. So he composed the Port Chicago um, uh, concert. And so we had an event, lots of people came, they were really excited. So over time, we have done lots of events. And to speak specifically to your question, I'll give you this example of what happened. Several years ago, California had something on the ballot that would eliminate the death penalty. Mm -hmm. So we commissioned a, a jazz company, dance company, Zacco Dance Company, to partner with Marcus Shelby on creating an event about, it was called Dying While Black and Brown. It was dance and music. So we had that. We also had Mr. Anthony Graves speak who had been on death row in Texas for 19 years and was ultimately free because he didn't do it. At the beginning of the event, which was at a jazz club in San Francisco called Yoshi's, a young man walked in, I talked to him. He was completely in favor of the death penalty. When he left, he went out of his way to find me and tell me he had changed his mind. I believe that music, art, gets to you on a whole different level. I can sue people, I can speechify, whatever, but there are different parts of you that are engaged by the arts. Think about the impression that the young woman, Amanda Gorman made at the inauguration. That was art. She, she's now speaking at the NFL, the NFL at Super Bowl that you know won't hire Colin Kaepernick, but somehow, and I think some of it's exploitation, but that's just me. Um, but the fact that she was able to talk about where we are as a nation in poetic and artistic terms got through to people in a way that speechifying will not. Um, and I was uh, asking you where you were located and you said Jamestown. And I thought, oh, Jamestown, Virginia. And you went, no, New York. New York. <laughs> but in, in 1619, 20 Africans landed at Jamestown in Virginia. And I didn't realize until a week ago that these, this happened before the Mayflower because there were tobacco people who came to America first to make money and to make money off black bodies. Um, so we commissioned this amazing uh, piece of work that took it from Africa in the 1600s 
all the way up to the present day. And we had dancers and singers and it was, it was remarkable. And it was at the San Francisco Jazz Center. One of the amazing things about the event was there were so many different kinds of people there. Um, you had every race mingling, happy, everybody digging jazz. And you could have heard a pin drop by the end of the performance. People were weeping. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I'm in two bands. I'm a singer in two bands. So that, that's just part of my vibe. But I also have seen over 20 years how music, dance, spoken word, poetry, how profoundly it impacts people. So as once again, it started in a mercenary way, but it's gotten to be a more lofty um, uh, issue for us. When it is something I think a lot of people who are doing work similar to what we're doing, um, it's a concept that we all struggle with in that sometimes the people who most need to hear what it is we're trying to say um, are the least likely to involve themselves in, in what it is that we're doing. And so, you know, we have these conversations all the time here at the Jackson Center of how do we reach, how do we, how do we make that outreach? How do we get to that group of people? Um, Juan Thomas and I, when we talked two weeks ago, talked about, you know, maybe, maybe that's not the way to go. Maybe it is you start by broadening your circle and then help have that circle help you broaden your circle more and go that way. And this artistic component to me seems um, like more of a leapfrog. Like it's really, we're getting, we're getting out there. We're getting that message in front of people, which is part of what I find so intriguing about it and inspiring. Well, think about um, the, you may be too young for this, but 40, 50 years ago, there was a TV program called Roots and it talked about slavery and what it was all about. And this is when there were only like four TV stations. So everyone in America was watching this. And I think it had a profound effect on people's understanding of race. You touch on something though that I'm struggling with right now. Um, I'm always a person who wants to go out and you know talk to people and with reason, come see it our way. And I'm trying to think if I can have that conversation with QAnon or the people who stormed the Capitol, I think I can't. I, as I said, come from a military family and I'm in touch with about 40 people I went to high school with. I graduated in, in 67 and we've been friendly for years. And then all of a sudden Trump ran for office and this division started with just nastiness going back and forth. And I kept trying to be rational and not be nasty to people. But I kept saying, well, have you heard this? And hey, half a million people have died from COVID. What do you think about that? But there's nothing moving them. So um, one thing Biden said that was echoed in a book written by um, Alicia Garza, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter is there are enough of us to move an agenda. And so I don't know that I have energy anymore to get to the QAnon people. I think there are people who are conservative and Republican, who are reasonable, who can listen to logic. But as you see what's happening in Congress and people went to try to invalidate the votes primarily of people of color, after there are people in the Capitol trying to kill them and they went ahead with this lie about fraud, how can you have a rational conversation with them? That breaks my heart because I am at heart um, an advocate. I was on the speech and debate team. My faith tells me not to write anybody off, to always reach out with love. But I just don't know if our energy is well spent trying to convince someone who thinks because of my beliefs, I'm in league with the Satan, with Satan, I don't think I can have a rational conversation. So I hear what you're saying. And I think there are people who are what we call, when we do electoral politics, persuadables. Mm -hmm. So you've got to figure out who's persuadable and who's a lost cause. So I, this is something I've been struggling with um, since the election and then struggling with it even more after the the insurrection and the attempted coup. Well, and so I, I know that EJS's 
has been directing its efforts towards school discipline, special education, the inequities in the criminal justice system, uh, the disparities in service in municipalities, um, and the school to prison pipeline. Have you been thinking about additional ways to direct your energy since the election? Let's start with, with, this, uh, with this new administration. How is that potentially changing the direction or, or the work that you're doing? It's interesting you asked that. Um, right after, and I, I despise Trump. This is my personal opinion. I think he's a white supremacist. One of the things I wanna talk about later is whether or not what he did with COVID and what he didn't do and caging the Latino kids constitutes crimes against humanity. That's one of the reasons I wanted to be here today. These are my personal views, not the views of the center. Um, but after, uh, you may recall that he glided down the escalator on June 16th, 2015. I remember that date because it was my birthday. The next day, Dylan Roof went into the church, Mother Emanuel, the next day and murdered nine Christians who invited him to come in and pray. One thing I think people don't remember is that the people who arrested him took him to Burger King before he was taken to jail. If he had been a black man who killed white people, would he have gone to Burger King? He probably never would have made it alive to the, to the police station. So over those first few months of his candidacy, we were very alarmed. So we were not even comfortable talking about a concept of white supremacy. We went, can we say white supremacy? And we had a whole board meeting and finally decided we could. So many things happened that we started a weekly newsletter called This Week in White Supremacy. I'm kind of a wise ass, as you can probably tell. And I thought, ah, oh, This Week in White Supremacy, I like that. Unfortunately, there were so many entries, it was horrible. People said, you can't just hit us with all this bad stuff, tell us some good stuff. So we put in some good things. And over time, the good things started outweighing the bad. So after the election, we thought, well, maybe we can, you know, get rid of this week in white supremacy. Now that Trump has been defeated, things won't be so grim. No, no. So we thought that with the new administration that there would be a better environment for racial justice. Um, but what I see is, is that's not the case. You have, I believe that there are hardline white supremacists in the Republican party and they're not being denounced, they're not being kicked out of Congress. You had a woman who said she was gonna put a, wanted to have a bullet put in Nancy Pelosi's head. If a black person said that, they'd be thrown out of Congress in a second. She's still there, they're not gonna get rid of her. So we had a staff meeting yesterday and we talked about two things. We talked about the fact that our democracy is in danger. You have a lot of Republican Republicans who would have thrown out the results of the election. Circle back and remember whose votes they were contesting. Black folks in Philadelphia, Black folks in Detroit, Latinos in Arizona. This was about, and I heard Tucker Carlson on Fox News. I watch it from time to time. It's hard to take, um, but I need to know what they're thinking. And he basically said, how dare people in Detroit have any right to determine who the president is? What? Um, so our democracy is in trouble. So the two things we're gonna be talking about um, in terms of setting our priorities for 2021 is how do we protect our democracy? Martin Luther King said, and this is a paraphrase, that people feel democracy is for white people and authoritarianism is for people of color. And that's what I think you're seeing. So we have to work on dealing with racism, but if our democracy is imperiled, if our votes don't count, then it, the other stuff doesn't matter. So we need to figure out how to help democracy. We don't think we'll be taking the lead on this. And one of the things I'm gonna propose is for us to find out who in the national community, remember the grand coalition, who in the national community is taking the lead on this and how can we help? So that's point one. Point two, we have to keep running our newsletter this week in white supremacy. Um, I remember on January uh, 6th, I stayed at home. I thought 
I'm not going out. What the hell is that about? My next door neighbor is a police officer and they were going to do stuff a couple of days later. I said, am I okay? And he said, yeah, you are. But why don't you, and this is what my next door neighbor said to me, why don't you carry, because I'd been on, on our NPR station the day before talking about the fact that these people who invaded the, the Capitol were thugs and hoodlums and should be arrested. It has to be said, we can't be afraid, but I was afraid. So I talked to my next door neighbor. He said, oh, you don't need to worry but why don't you carry around your car keys with you? And if something happens, press the panic button so I can hear you. Hmm. That to me said everything. Why do I need to live in fear? Why, I, I could go on and on and on, but the, net, the I guess Homeland Security is saying, these people wanna take folks out. They're racist. They wanna take out, they may wanna take out individual uh, people of color who speak out. So to me, I thought that the election of Biden and Harris would help. But think about the fact that the election of Obama made these people crazy. My best friend, Shauna Marshall, is a law professor. And we were on a panel together doing commemorative conversations about 1619. And she said that at the beginning of the establishment of America, poor white people and poor black people teamed up to fight against the growers in, um, in Virginia, I think it was Bacon's Rebellion. And so what happened was the evil white people thought, hmm, if white and black people team up, team up our goose is cooked. So what they put out, which has remained to this day is, well, you may be poor, but you're not black. Mm. And they started imposing more severe restrictions on black people. We could have, we used to be able to buy our way out of bondage that was taken away. Our, the children of enslaved people were slaves forever. So there has been this notion that people in power have very effectively used of divide and conquer. Um, you may have a horrible life, but you're not black. So you have a black family in the white house. This has got to make people crazy. This totally messes with their, their self-concept. So I think that's one of the reasons Trump was so successful. He was able to play into that racism. Now you have a woman who's black and South Asian, they're going to be going crazy. And so these people now feel, um, they, they stormed the Capitol. And if you look at what happened, I believe the Department of Defense was complicit in that. They stopped the National Guard from going there for four hours. Schumer and Pelosi were begging for help and no help came. I hope this comes out in the impeachment trial. So we're in a very different universe than we were on November 3rd when I thought, oh, you know, thank God, free at last. I'm, I'm more nervous than ever. On the other hand, I've got my African mask right here. I've got my picture of Harriet Tubman. They went through stuff, they persevered. That's what I've got to do too. So um, you didn't know I was so long-winded. So that's my-, that's my <laughs> Actually, I have listened to a lot of your speeches and a lot of your, your things. So I, I knew what I was getting into. But it's also it's what you just raised too also, I think um, raises an interesting challenge, not just for EJS, but for a lot of organizations in that there is the, what we see is the foundational cracks in the democracy that we want to figure out how do we try and close those cracks or how do we support those who are closing those cracks. But then there, there is still the work that we were doing and trying to advance that at the same time. And so, um, and certainly understand what you're saying about, okay, we see the challenges to our democracy. We need to work on that. Does it shift your focus then from the work that EGS has traditionally been doing in, or is it a matter of new administration? We continue that work, maybe because these these are more progressive leaning. That side of our work actually becomes a little bit easier. Um, so, just curious as to how you're thinking about that at this point. Um, we're going to have a, an all staff discussion about that, and we will ultimately involve our board. But and this may be a strange response, but. Um, I felt like on June 16th, 2015, I went 
to war. I enlisted in an army. Because think about what we have been through in five years. And we thought Trump might get reelected. And people I know were saying, I'm leaving the country, although we can't go anyplace because of COVID. But people were saying, that's it. And so think of the extreme stress all of us have been under. It's like some a friend of mine yesterday said, it's PTSD. And it's going to take us a while to really feel comfortable again. So what I'm saying is this. I feel like we were asked to go above and beyond normal activities for the past five years. So I think if we can just ratchet that down, EJS can keep doing its work to keep kids out of the school to prison pipeline. Um, we were involved in getting checks, stimulus checks to incarcerated people because the evil people at the Trump administration said, no, if you're in prison, you can't get the stimulus check. We sued, they lost. So we will keep doing that work. And the added energy and stress that we had to deal with during these, this, these five years of hell, I think we ratchet that down and we'll have time to work on the cracks in the foundation of democracy. Once again, I don't think EJS takes the lead. We're in coalition. We'll certainly share information with our listserv. We have every day there's like five sign-on letters for us to sign on to for this and that and this and that. We're totally on board. So I think we can do both and we have to. Um, we, so I, once again, though, our organization will talk about that internally, but my sense is we'll keep doing what we were doing and we'll just be um, very alert to what we can do to shore up democracy and to continue to fight violent white supremacy, armed white supremacy. I don't know who's out there. Um, you may be in a demographic where you may have a target on your back, but it's kind of scary to think, I didn't leave my house that day that they were out and about. So their terrorism worked. So the last thing I'll say is this, um, I am disturbed at how these rioters have been treated. I am sure that if a group of black people had gone to the Capitol, they would have dropped a bomb on us. We would not have been, okay, bye, go home, take another selfie. Can I help you down the Capitol steps? Why have they only arrested 150 people? Many of the, one woman, who stole Pelosi's laptop was sent home to her mother. Now I'm not all for just, you know, incarcerating everybody, but you know, if that had been a black person, they would not have been sent home to their mother. So we're seeing in real time um, the disparities in the racial justice system. So I think to, to circle back to what you asked, we will keep doing what we're doing on racial justice and the like, but we have to be, um, my metaphor is jazz for a lot of things. And we've got to be able to improvise given what's going on at the present moment. And we, we're very small, we're very mighty. We only have seven people, but we take care of enormous business and we'll do it in concert with other people. Well, and this, this leads me to, you know, a question I've been thinking about too is, this problem is big. Like there are so many parts of it that need to be tackled. And it doesn't really seem as if there is a starting point. Like we should start here and then the dominoes will fall. And so how do you, how does EJS start determining like, where are these entry points? Like, you know, is it just, okay, we have carved out these things and this is what we're going to work on and we'll partner with others in the grand coalition who are working on adjacent parts of it and we'll all try and move this forward. It's just, I, I think it's one of the, so for our audience who are looking for ways that they can help change things, how, how can they start identifying, this is where I think I can direct my energies, even though the problem and the system is so big. A couple of comments. There's a, a saying, how do you eat an elephant? And the answer is one bite at a time. <laughs> and you can't eat the whole elephant, but you can take a little piece of it. I also have heard something, you're put on earth to do something, not everything. And I have to tell that to myself because I want to, let me go here, let me go there. And, and it will make you crazy. So what I would do, and I'd say to your the people listening is, what do you want to do? Um, a lot of people went to Georgia or made calls or gave money. 
that turned the Senate blue. That was extraordinary. Climate change is now up and being taken seriously. Is that your concern? So just find something to do. And I, I'm part of this national network and I know there are people working on every possible issue you could conceive of and doing great work. So you don't have to take care of everything. Find out what you're interested in and plug in or do something that makes you a little uncomfortable. Um, if you're a white person struggling with how to counter racism, you might find a, a multiracial group that is talking about how to deal with these things. Because there are things white people can say to each other that I can't say because people are not going to hear. So you might want to go out of your comfort zone a little bit. But I think no matter what you do, it's important. Also to the moms and dads out there, because I know you're having a hell of a time in the pandemic, take care of yourselves and take care of your children. There'll be more to do once this is over. So don't put more on yourself. I, I, I don't have children. I can't imagine how parents are dealing with this. So I think the parents get a pass <laughs> until the pandemic is over. Just really take care of your kids. Um, we, when, when Trump started his racist nonsense, we were very concerned because we heard that children were being bullied, kids of color were being bullied in schools. So we worked with uh, Dr. Allison Briscoe Smith who has done some training on how to talk to your children about racism. I don't know if she's updated, how do you talk to your children about a coup? But I think there are things that parents can do to talk to their kids and support their kids so that they're not little racist. Um, and so I, I'm really serious because when I talk to my friends who are parents, I just, I don't, I don't know how they're coping. So if you have time, um, do that. If you have money, if you have a trust fund and you're feeling really guilty because you have all that money, there are people I think who would appreciate your money. These organizations need money to, to, to move things. Actually, a small thing that seems small, like calling or emailing or writing a letter to your congressperson or senator really works. Um, they count those letters. They actually count that. So that's something that's relatively easy to do. So there's a whole range. And, and then I just want to say, this pandemic is horrible. We're trying to just go about our daily business like 500,000 people haven't died. I just got my vaccine the other day. It pays to be over 65 for once. Um, these are scary, scary, scary times. So you may just want to take care of yourself until things get a little better. And I give you dispensation from the civil rights community <laughs> if you just watch TV and take care of yourself and wear, they're now saying wear two masks. Mm -hmm. So there's a range of things you can do, but we have to take care of ourselves because at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is make sure people have good lives and we get to have good lives. So there's all kinds of things you can do. You don't, but eat the elephant one bite at a time or just wave at the elephant and say, not today. I appreciate the Eva dispensation. I will, I will take, I will uh, spread that around as well. We're going to open up to our audience for questions, but um, as we do that, I, I do want to address the, the question that you were hoping we would get to. So um, let's talk a little bit about, and I don't know if EJS is planning on getting involved in these things, but so the conversation around has what has happened in the United States over the last four years risen to the level of a crime against humanity? Um, and again, as part of our sort of pre-exchange, I had mentioned how there was a healthcare union in Brazil who has filed a complaint with the International Criminal Court um, on Bolsonaro's handling of the coronavirus, the COVID-19 um, pandemic in Brazil. Um, I could not find any more information on it other than that that complaint had been filed. Um, but, uh, you know, I'd love to hear some of what you're thinking and what you're, you're wondering about this. Um, EJS was appalled by all the things that Trump was doing. But when he put Latino, and it's hard to kind of talk about it without getting emotional. 
But when he put kids in cages and when they said that causing pain to the parents was part of why they did it, that is just evil. And we read about young women being raped, kids not getting proper medication. After Trump won, and I may mispronounce her name, but there was a New York Times um, book reviewer named Machiko Kukatani. I'm sorry if I mispronounce your name, but she reviewed this book about Hitler. And it was clear she was saying, pay attention, pay attention. Because everything she said about Hitler's rise, oh, people thought he was just goofy. And then, oh my God, everything she wrote, she clearly was saying, pay attention. Um, so when I saw what happened with those kids, I was thinking, these are concentration camps. We may call it a different name, but this is to me very similar to what happened to Jews in, in Germany. Um, as I said, I'm a military kid and we were stationed in France. And I remember going to this town called Orléans sur la Glen. And apparently some French people had spat on some Nazis and the Nazis went in and lined up all the people, Jews and non-Jews, and just in, a, in front of an empty ditch and shot them all. And I think that's where my sense of evil existing in the world and that something had to be done came from. So I'm very alert to anything that feels like genocide. So locking the kids up, taking them from their parents, that was horrible. But then COVID, I just got vaccinated. I'm in the high risk category. Um, I'm an older, overweight black woman. And think about what we have learned about Trump. He knew this was deadly. He lied to us. He muzzled the scientists around him. Jared Kushner apparently had a plan, but then when he learned it was gonna to go to blue states, um, he pulled the plan back. It is known that black, Latino, and Asian American people are disproportionately impacted by COVID. We are dying. I watched a show the other night with a young Latino woman who said her parents both had died and five people in her family were died, dead, were dead. They knew what they were doing. They did nothing. They lied. A half a million people are going to be dead by next month. I don't know what the standard is, but I think people should be looking at it. And that was one of the reasons I was very eager to be part of this. Um, we, once again, we don't feel we have to do everything, but I wanna talk with my friend who does a lot of international, Candela de la Vega, who's a professor out here. She does a lot of work on international law. And I think I wanna reach out to her to see if anybody's moving on this. Half a million people are dead they shouldn't be dead. One of my colleagues is Filipina and her auntie died on Sunday. And we blame Trump. That woman should not be dead. We should have gotten the vaccine earlier. People should have known how deadly this was. So I don't know if it's a viable claim, but I think it should be investigated. And this is me speaking for myself, not on behalf of the center. I appreciate that caveat, um, but also, you know, it, it is one of those challenges, especially with this type, with the international humanitarian law work, in that there is still the sovereignty issues, and so things that are fully internally impacting sometimes have a greater challenge in, in, in making that definition. Um, and also, although there certainly, as you mentioned, have been conversations that seem in, to indicate a certain intent, um, that proving that can be challenging. And so even, even within that, the definitions of, um, if we just look at the United States' definition of crimes against humanity, a political component isn't a part of that definition. Um, and so, you know, it really is trying to make the determination of was there a specific intent, which is another part of that definition, to to adversely impact, kill um, a certain race, racial group, a certain ethnic group, um, a certain religious group, or things like that. And just all of these, as you mentioned, are challenging things to overcome. I think, personally, uh, my thought is this is an interesting discussion point 
I don't know that it has legs. I would, I would be surprised if it had legs. Three points. Um, I was watching MSNBC the other night and Steve Schmidt was on and he was talking about the fact that people are saying, you're not going to be able to convict Trump. So why even bother having the trial? And he made a very interesting point. He said in the South back in the day, it was known who was killing and lynching and bombing black people. They also knew that once they got to court, they would be acquitted because the jurors didn't care. But he said, and I think this was a good point that I hadn't thought of, and that is that it was important to say, we're drawing a line in the sand and this is wrong and we may not win, but we wanna, we wanna publicize this. Which leads me to my point of, I think it's important to at least talk about this. And maybe at the end of the day, I'm a lawyer and you don't bring claims that are sanctionable, but um, if they're colorable, so to speak, I think they should be brought. So the next point I'd make, and I didn't go into this um, in my initial remarks, is that one of the requirements for proving that the 14th Amendment's equal protection claims have been made out is that the discrimination has to be intentional. One of the things that we wrote amicus briefs about and actually got to Justice Kennedy on is a lot of bias is not conscious, it's unconscious. And I, there are people whose eyes are glazing over, but there's a concept in the law called disparate impact. Even though you didn't mean to be racist, if the impact falls more heavily on people of color, then you're liable. And so that would be an argument that I would make. I haven't, I've never litigated in the international courts, but we would like to say that it was foreseeable using tort language, it was foreseeable that once you knew this disproportionately impacted black people and older people and you lied, they lied. And I don't know if you saw in the paper yesterday, there was money for COVID that they used to buy furniture I mean, come on. So we may lose, but I think it's important to make the point. This is wrong and we may not win today, but someday, you know, 20 years from now, there may be somebody having this panel, you know, saying, yeah, it was kind of crazy in 2021 to bring this up, but we actually won and Trump is in prison. Hmm. All right, we have a question from Helena. And she would like to know, what are your expectations regarding President Biden's executive order on advancing racial equity and support for underserved communities and the role of the Domestic Policy Council to coordinate domestic policy objectives? Um, I'll respond on two levels. Um, I haven't studied what he said really thoroughly, but I was so delighted that he did it. And to be just pragmatic, He's president because of Black folks. He's president because of Black women. And so the Democratic Party has often paid lip service to the concerns of Black people. I call this, I call it like a battered wife syndrome. Um, they, they knew we'd stick with them and wouldn't leave, but they wouldn't really do right by us. And it's clear to me that's either because of Biden's own internal sense of right and wrong or because a Black South Asian woman is his vice president, or he knows that James Clyburn saved him in the, in the primaries. Um, he seems to be weaving racial justice into everything he's doing. And this is such a breath of fresh air that I'm just delighted. As I said, I haven't studied it thoroughly, but the fact that this was one of the first things that he said, and he made a point of this um, in his inaugural address um, is very hopeful to me. Democracy is a, is, is a participatory endeavor. So we've got to keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. We just can't kind of sit back and go, Trump's gone, we can chill. Except those of you who are parents. <laughs> the Eva dispensation. <laughs> um, okay, so um, when we spoke, and this is the, I think probably one of the last things, although I do have a lightning round series of questions right at the very end. Um, very easy, I promise. Um, one of our conversation, one of the audience raised a question with Juan Thomas a couple of weeks ago about the importance of diversity in the federal judiciary. And I know this is something that is near and dear to both your heart and EJS's work. Um, and so want to also have your quick thoughts on um, 
President Biden came in with one of the lowest um, judicial openings uh, number uh, in, in recent memory. Although I think just in the last week, about a dozen or so federal judges have announced their plans to retire. So that number is increasing. Um, I, I, let's talk about sort of what is what is the diversity that you're hoping to see um, in the federal judiciary? Because I think it is more just it's more than just people of color on the seat. It is also their backgrounds, their you know their education and things like that, and possibly those who have come up in the specific question last time was those who came up on the um, defense side of it. So on the as opposed to the prosecutorial side of it. So also wanted to get your thoughts on that. Um. Trump appointed one black person to the appellate courts, one. Um, and so we need a lot of a lot of decisions are made at the appellate court level. There's the district court, the appellate court and the Supreme Court. And most law is made at the appellate court. So we need to have more people of color, more women. You touch on a very important point. Most of the people who get federal judgeships are former prosecutors or corporate lawyers. I have been trying to convince a buddy of mine who was used to be a public defender to apply. The deadline is Saturday, and I don't think he has time to do it. There are three openings on the uh, bench of the Northern District of, of California. I'm also in touch with my friend, Leslie Prohl. Bless, bless her heart, not in the Southern sarcastic sense of bless her heart, but she has been fighting Trump for four years on behalf of the NAACP with these horrible judges. One of the other reasons I, and I said this before, that I want, I wanted to do this is Justice Jackson was one of the nine people who voted for Brown versus Board of Education. I feel that's kind of an emotional thing too, because that really started changing society. Um, and so we need to have more people on the federal courts, not just of color and women, but, pro but public defenders, civil rights lawyers. I mean, um, Thurgood Marshall being on the Supreme Court apparently profoundly impacted Justice O'Connor because she's a cowgirl from Arizona and he would tell his stories about not being able to stay in hotels when he went and litigated in the South and it, it changed her view of things. So we need to have people with different experiences up there. There's also talk in the civil rights community of adding four more justices to the US Supreme Court and also adding more district court judges because some of the district courts are overwhelmed. So we've got this time and I think people are moving quickly. Um, I know that our senators, our new senator, uh, Senator Padilla and uh, Senator Feinstein will, they have their committees up and running. And so people are gonna be pushing really hard to diversify the federal bench. Okay, all right, the lightning round. What progress do you hope to see in the next year? A lot of it will just be undoing the dreadful things that Trump has done. We will also have a president who is not a white supremacist uh, and he won't be sending out, it used to be a dog whistle, a bullhorn to racists that, that it's okay. Um, I think people will see how fabulously competent Black slash South Asian women are as being vice president. It's, it's so exhilarating, you have no idea. Um, and we aren't gonna be playing defense uh, for four years. It's been grueling. I cannot tell you how grueling it has been for all of us, but particularly as a civil rights lawyer, every day something crazy comes up that you've got to respond to. So we're no longer, my, my, my metaphor analogy is people were at the gates of our village trying to burn the village down. And all we could do was put water on it. The fire's out, we can now rebuild and expand our village and make it better. So there's just more space to get things done. What gives you hope that progress will actually be made? Um, I see all these young people in Congress and poets and lawyers and, and they're feisty and they're doing stuff. I'm, I'm close to retirement age. And so when I look at a Cori Bush or an AOC or a Jamal Bowman, um, uh, Amanda, Amanda Gorman, I see all these young people with energy and hope. We're also, we also have a president who's gonna make sure we don't destroy our planet because as much as I am a racial justice warrior, we're destroying the planet, that has to stop. 
Um, I'm also an optimist by nature. These five years have been utter hell. And I felt we could get through them. I felt we could get through it if he got reelected. Um, I believe that there are higher powers out there that are going to help us make things better. I pray a lot. Um, and as somebody, what I'm going to say next is a low bar, but I'm not picking cotton. I'm not middle passage. I can call the president of the United States a racist white supremacist and I will not be jailed. So. Who else is doing good work at the moment towards this oh, progress? Girl, that, that, <laughs> do you have an hour? <laughs> this is what I need to say to all of you. I am in the middle of many uh, streams of activism. I cannot tell you how many organizations, individuals, coalitions. I'm telling you, I get five sign-on letters a day about different things. Do not worry. There are many, 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 many people doing good things. Just don't even worry about that. Okay. All right. And then the last one is, and you have given us a few as we have gone through today, but suggested readings or podcasts or thinkers that you would highlight for us. You, you know, you you've highlighted four or five, and we'll put that um, into the the chat um, for our audience um, for perpetuity as well. But just wanted to see if there's anybody else that you're thinking about that audiences should tune into. Yeah, Alicia Garza, I mentioned her new book and she got me off this thinking that I have to convince every person in the world uh, to do right things. That's a waste of time. And she speaks very uh, candidly to that. Um, I would, if you're on Twitter, I would follow a man named Michael Harriot, H-A-R-R-I-O-T. I think it's just one T. He work, He writes for a publication called The Root and he, uh, he, from time to time, will just do these amazing threads that are history and analysis, and he's very funny. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates has written a book, uh, an article that came out in the last 10 days, I think it was in The Atlantic, talking about um, Trump being the first white president. And I think, I haven't read it all, but I think he breaks down uh, the racial aspect of this. And then there are people who are talking about the fact that the insurrectionists, that, that was not an aberration, that the Republican party is embracing this. Um, and this is troublesome. And so we need to figure that out. Um, I love Twitter. Um, I have kind of like a magpie personality. I like lots of different things. Twitter's fabulous. You will find just all kinds of stuff. There's a lot of funny, crazy stuff too. But there are voices you'll never think about that will tell you things you don't know about. So I love Twitter. Okay. All right. So thank you, everyone, for joining us for tea today. A couple of upcoming program notes so you can mark your calendars. Um, on Monday, February 8th at 3 p.m., we will be talking with author and historian Francine Hirsch about her book, Soviet Judgment at Nuremberg. And so we'll be taking a look at the often ignored role of the Soviets, both in the Nuremberg trials and in the establishment of international humanitarian law. Um, it is a free webinar, but it does require pre-registration, which you can do at roberthjackson.org. And then our next tea will be two weeks from today, February 11th. And in February, we will be exploring the equity gap as it relates to women and girls. Um, so shifting focus. And then Eva, again, thank you so very much for being with us today and challenging us. Um, I am getting more comfortable in my discomfort um, as well. So I appreciate this, this growth opportunity. And we know these conversations never really end. So we will keep doing the work. But I just wanted to say thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center presented in collaboration with Chautauqua Institution. Our program's associate producer is Nicole Gustafson. Bryson Barnes is our producer and composer. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this program was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a Facebook live event produced by the Jackson Center. The mission of the Robert H. Jackson Center is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. 
we envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of future or previous guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe. Thank you. CHQ Assembly is made possible through the collaboration and innovation of Chautauqua Institution's full-time and part-time staff, seasonal staff, and many volunteers, as well as participants like you, whose engagement, gifts, and subscriptions sustain our mission.